Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. Hello. It's the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3, various other frequencies, and on our website www.fmr.co.za. I'm Gory Bose-Taylor. This happy hour, Andrew Marshbacks, Wordsworth Books, finds fine reads for fine minds. While we raise our glasses to two connoisseurs du vin, the great and glorious John Platter, on his new book, My Kind of Wine, and Caro Feely, who tells of the Feely family's ultimately successful venture into a French vineyard in Grape Expectations and Saving Our Skins. We have two copies of each of those as giveaways in our easy-peasy competition question. Peter Soule finds provocation and stimulation in ferial haffages. What if there were no whites in South Africa? Well, Philip Todris finds a new monograph, Sue Williamson, Life and Work, edited by Mark Fisser. Philip says it's a seriously handsome overview of Sue's work. In The Secret Chord by Geraldine Brooks, Cindy Moritz finds a biblical King David ecstatic, visceral and virile. Beverly Rawls-Muller checks Churchillian financial facts and figures in no More Champagne, Churchill and His Money by David Locke. R. C. Sturgis writes rivetingly and revealingly on The Mammals That Moved Mankind, A History of the Beasts of Burden. And, if we have time, John Geit reviews David Burns' multi-headed, prolific and reflective discourse, How Music Works. Stay tuned to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers or one of four of Caro Feedy's Wine Adventure Memoirs. Andrew Marshbanks, Fine Finds for Fine Minds. Hi, Gory. Well, I thought this month, let's just have a quick look at the bestseller list and see what, what's happening there. Of course, Tim Noakes is still way up near the top, together with Sugar Free. Um, the whole sugar-free banting thing is still very, very hot and very, very uh, popular in South Africa. And, of course, the political books. Justice Malala's book, We Have Now Begun Our Descent, is right up there. When we go to R.W. Johnson is there as well, How Long Will South Africa Survive? His book becoming more and more pertinent as we go on. And the new book on Jan Smuts by Richard Stein is right up there on the bestseller list. An amazing read. Anyone who likes South African history, The Young Smuts by Richard Stein. Brilliant. Jonathan Ball publishes. And in fiction, there's really not that much up there. There's uh, Patricia Cornwall, Flesh and Blood. There's uh, Dion Mayer, Icarus, that's still there. The new Nicholas Sparks, who, as you know, writes those romantic uh, sort of fiction called See Me, very popular, he's up there, and Paula Hawkins, The Girl on the Train, is still there on the bestseller list, as are all the adult coloring books. Well, I've got some really nice fiction here. 
I've got the first part of the quartet of books. It's called The Neapolitan Novels by Elena Ferrante. Elena Ferrante wrote these books a little while ago. They've been translated into English. They've caught the world by storm, and it's been a slow capture because people have read them and recommended as a real word-of-mouth um, uh, bestseller. Uh, her first book is My Brilliant Friend, and you should, if you're going to read her, she is a marvelous author. It starts with My Brilliant Friend, set in Naples, in the poor, poor town, uh, poor streets of Naples. Two girls, one who is absolutely brilliant, My Brilliant Friend, and the author herself who's talking about it. And it's the, the dialogue between the two, the way they're brought up their life in, in Italy. They are marvelous, absolutely absorbing. Once you get into that life, you don't doesn't let you go. You want to finish all of them. Brilliant. It's Elena Ferrante, my brilliant friend, and they're about three ninety five Rand each. Then I've got uh, also in fiction, I've got the new Marion Keys. It's not a novel this time. It's a collection of all her articles for various magazines. It's called Making It Up As I Go Along. Tales from an Egypt who was buying shoes the day life's rule book was issued. And it goes like that. They are all brilliant stories, brilliant articles. Not so much short stories, but articles about her life, her times, and the times we live in. There are lots of them. It's a nice, thick book. And anyone who likes her sense of humor and her style will love this book. Fabulous Shoes, My Badly Made Stews, An Atlantic Cruise, and Ten Pounds to Lose. That's her life. Having to schmooze when I far rather snooze, skin care and bad hair, and what should I wear? All kinds of views which I hope will amuse. That's Marion Keys, making it up as I go along, and it's 285 Rand. And the last fiction I've got is number six in the Jeffrey Archer series, Cometh the Hour, and this is his great big series, The Clifton Chronicles, which started off with, let me just find it, Only Time Will Tell and The Sins of the Father. Anyone who's following this series loves Jeffrey Archer, loves this series, and this is the new one there. Cometh the Hour, Jeffrey Archer, and that's 385 Rand. Now, The Naked Scientist has just done a book. Do people follow him on, on he's extremely popular on Cape Talk and people follow him there and every week I think he comes on with Rudy Dureko Rudy Klavi and he does a column and takes questions from people and answers the most obscure questions very easily and so that we can all understand it he's got a book here about scientific discoveries and everyday life under the microscope it's by Chris Smith there's a lot of articles in this it's a lovely little book it's a hundred rand something for anyone who likes a bit of science and a bit of what's happening in the life. And then the last book that I have here is a magnificent tome. It's called The Story of a House, Fables and Feasts from La Cruzette. This is a book written by two people, Louis Janssen from Furen and Hardy Olivier, who went to France, bought a chateau, renovated it, and started the French lifestyle. It's part renovation, part look at the house, 
look at the, my lifestyle in France and a lot of cooking and recipes and stuff that you will really salivate over. The book is absolutely beautiful. It's in a slipcase. Uh, there are two books in the slipcase. It's from Quivertree Publications. It's 600 Rand, and it is a book that you will adore. Fantastic stuff. Lovely stuff in the bookshop. Thank you very much. Cheers, everyone. Ah, oh, that Le Creuset. They did one before, as I'm sure everybody remembers. And you'll find all Andrew's titles on our podcast of this program, which will be up in a few days' time. And now for our two connoisseurs du vin, John Platter first, then Caro Feely. John Platter. I rather hoped that we'd meet at the clink of good glasses, but, you know, there you are at home in Natal. Here we are in uh, sunny Cape Town. Anyway, cheers. You launched the John Platter Wine Guide way back in 1979, and you've since sold it. Then you and your dynamic wife, Erica, crossed the continent for Africa Uncorked, Travels in Extreme Wine Territory. That was in 2002, and it was a headily successful book. We're going to chat about your new, brilliant, absorbing, inspiring book, which is called My Kind of Wine. And uh, you've written the book in the only what I think is the truly professional way to sit down with a winemaker plus a notepad plus a pen. Well done, you. After all these... Plus a glass of wine. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> After all these uncorkings and what are amusingly called horizontal tastings, what is your kind of wine? Well, Gary, the first thing is that... Um, <laughs> There are so many wines these days. There are about seven or 8,000 new wines every year from 800 producers. That's a lot many more than we used to have when Eric and I were doing the wine guide. So the choice is, is, is widened enormously. But my kind of wine is the sort of wine I enjoy in different locations, different occasions, and different situations. So it goes wide, wide, wide. And uh, I say... I don't have any real favorites for any length of time. I come back to old favorites all the time, but I don't, I really do wander around and have different um, experiences. Well, your, your old winemaking friends are those from Tadima, Newson Johnson, Hartenberg, isn't it, and Graham Beck. But many of the 70 or so winemakers that you interviewed are the next generation. Has much changed in South African wine and winemaking? Oh, it has changed enormously. It's become, it's really explosive, really interesting. And the new styles, new varieties, I mean, uh, who knew about Vadello uh, a few years ago? Who knew about uh, Roll and uh, another one? And actually, we're going to have about 30 or 40 new, new varieties, I think, for the next two or three years. So not only has the variety uh, expanded, but the styles have. I mean, I, the, what's really encouraging, too, from many of the younger winemakers, but also they, in their experimentation, have woken up the older generation as well. So there's a whole ferment of newness, uh, excitement. And what's really nice about this story is that the world has taken notice of it. And South Africa is very, very, um, I wouldn't like to use the word too much, but it's, it's sexy in the wine world at the moment, internationally. That's all very exciting, too. And, John, you're actually very unposh about the way you drink and, and what you drink. So tell us what you had for supper last night and which wine with it. Uh, well, look, you know, I think there's, there's, as I say in the book, there's 
you know, you can go by the old rule, that's fine. But the new, the new sort of in thing is, is to be fairly carefree and, and uh, free-for-all and free-ranging in, in your choice of wines. But there's some things. Okay, some people will not like a red wine with fish, for example. But I think the, one of the most important things is to get the sauces right. So we had a Dorado fish last night but we had it with a tamarind sauce, and that's got a sort of um, sweet and sour, plummy edge to it that caramelizes very beautifully, and I actually had it with a red wine, and it's one of the new ones that I really like. It's a Nebbiolo from Steenberg, which got plenty of grip, and uh, the, the, you know, the fish and the tamarind didn't suffer at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't with you. We were talking to John Platter about his new book. It's called My Kind of Wine. Cara Feely, you and your husband Sean were high flowers with top jobs in Dublin, which you gave up to follow your dream of owning a vineyard in France. You, your husband, a toddler, Sophia, and a newborn Ellie, land on a 10-hectare vineyard with its beautiful but dilapidated 18th century farmhouse and I might add dilapidated drains indeed <laughs> <laughs> grape expectations a family's vineyard adventure in France is your evocative and yes it's an intimate telling of the magic and the misery yeah. of the glory and the gore I mean Sean's finger comes to mind there's sheer and shared hard work some despair, but by the end of the book, you're both licking your lips over your award-winning wines. So you're pleased with them. We we are we are. It's uh, you know it's nearly eleven years that we've been there now, so it's completely different to um, what it was when we started. And our wines are definitely Im improve every year. And we we I think our our first year's wines were were lovely, but. Um, but we're we're biodynamic and organic, and we're very very passionate about that part of what we're doing. And I think that probably comes through more in in the second book. Actually, in the first book, a bit about the organic, but not nearly as much as in the second book, which is called Saving Our Skins. Saving Our Skins, indeed. And uh, but you're absolutely right. They're a human story, and it's very much about themes that I think every everybody goes through in in life, like. For us starting, I guess, new business, so there's, there's that angle, there's um, being kind of working mum, how do you juggle all of this? I think particularly in the second one, the juggling between, so saving our skins, the, the family and the growing business, this, the first one we were just trying to get ourselves to a point where every month wasn't a cliffhanger. But the second book, we're starting to have a growing business that's more about juggling this this growing business and trying to have a balanced life, which I don't think we had. <laughs> <laughs> and this is our first trip to South Africa, and wow, we've had such a ball. We've never been away from the farm for more than a week, and here we are, three weeks of unbelievable, wow, South Africa is so beautiful. <laughs> and I felt so emotional coming back. I was just, oh, wow, it's been amazing trip. I want to hear about your, their award-winning wines, the Chateau Freely and the Terroir Feely, but do you think it helped your wines that in your vineyards you had a snake, no, snakes, <laughs> a hare, a deer, a wild boar being hunted, and of course you went down the vats and had to get up the vats when there were spiders at the top. Indeed. 
indeed, indeed, indeed. Lots of biodiversity. We can say that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So we're in rural France and we're an hour from Bordeaux City. And I would say we're kind of rural, but we're not isolated. We're not remote. We're in a lovely village. We're walking distance to our village school and our village restaurant. And we have accommodation on the property and we do wine tours and that sort of thing. So it's lovely because you're in the wine lands, but you're not actually far, far away. And we've certainly got a lot of wildlife, but we don't have any lions. Or <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a couple to take home. <laughs> And Caro, masses of red tape in being winemakers and the Cournoiseau du Vin in France? Indeed, indeed. That is, I think, everywhere you go, red tape is probably growing. So you learn some some good swear words in French? Absolutely, and I hear the same thing from, from farmers here. You know, I think the bureaucracy has increased for everybody everywhere. And certainly the French are known for it, and that's totally, totally true. We have we have had our fair share of the of the red tape. It's um, it's part of both stories. Although I think we've learned to cope cope with it a little better. I don't swear quite as much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. And Caro, just tell us what wines you make: whites, reds. So we we make uh, dry white wines. We have a pure Sauvignon. We have a pure Semillon. Our wines are real terroir wines. You know this this word, this very French word, terroir. It's about the taste of place. It's about the the combination of this limestone soil. We're on an ancient seabed with lovely sea fossils in this limestone rock. And we get a real minerality in the wine. So our Sauvignon has a real sea character, almost like a sea breeze about it. And then the Semillon is very, very old Semillon grapes. They're all vines. They're 75 years old. So they're absolutely magnificent, really make interesting wines as well. And Caro, now for the bad news. I know that Europe can buy your wines online. We can't? Yes, unfortunately not. We do, we, and um, we, we make rosé, we make red wines, we make a dessert wine called Sauvignac. But unfortunately, for the moment, not in South Africa. But who knows, maybe that will, maybe that will change. Well, I'm just hearing that word uh, for the moment. <laughs> so that, 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 was the good, that was the good news. But if anyone's in Europe, we, we ship all over Europe online. So if they're there for holidays and they want to try our wines, absolutely. And it's, um, our website is feelywines.com so my surname feelywines.com and we'll be talking to Caro Feely about the first of her books it's called Grape Expectations the second is Saving Our Skins
Nice and light. That was the Dance of the Comedians by Smatna. It was played by the Cape Philharmonic and it was conducted by Owain Arbel Hughes. And here's your easy-peasy question to win one of four of Caro Feely's books or one of two 200-rand book vouchers from Wordsworth Books. Now, yesterday, 35,000 strong-limbed riders rode the glorious peninsula in a gruelling race. Were these motorbike riders or cyclists? We're waiting for your answer on 021 401 1013 Peter Soul, you found ferial haffages provocative and stimulating. What if there were no whites in South Africa is Ferial Haffages' first book and is published by Picador Africa. Before becoming editor in chief at City Press, Haffage was editor at the Mail and Guardian. She sits on a number of international boards and has won several awards related to media freedom and independence. She is a highly respected commentator and uses her position to focus on pertinent issues. In What If There Were No Whites in South Africa, Hafiji examines our history and our present in the light of a provocative question that yields some thought-provoking analysis for the country. Hafiji says the book doesn't answer the question. Some would say... If there were no whites, this bloody country would go down the drain. It's not that sort of book either, thankfully. And still others might answer, and it wouldn't be a moment too soon. It's not that book either. She prefers to think of it as a love song to Mzanzi, or the South Africa she loves dearly, as an attempt to see the possible. In old South African terms, Hafiji is of Indian Cape Malay background, and grew up in Bosmont, a predominantly coloured area to the west of Johannesburg, which has a large concentration of Cape Malay coloureds. She writes that she is a product of Bantu education and still does not know algebra or geometry or the great philosophers and philosophies as well as she should, despite half a lifetime of reading, because these concepts are best threaded into developing brains while at school. Hafiji takes us through her childhood to the time she becomes a reporter on the Mail and Guardian. This is when her education really begins, as she has to mix with and question stockbrokers, chairman of company boards, advertising executives and politicians. She makes the point that as late as 1999, not one of the seven columnists on a major financial journal were black. That has changed, and there are many black journalists of considerable quality who report for our major publications and on air. She moves to the student movements and the Rhodes Must Fall group who used the colonial era statue of Cecil John Rhodes to focus on the incomplete journey of transformation at the University of Cape Town. As the numbers of black students grew over the years at UCT, so did the issues they faced, including cultural alienation, study costs, the dominant culture of the campus, the plight of the insignificant number of black academics. The monument became the beachhead that contained all the grievances and students demanded roads must fall. Through the experiences of a mixed-race couple to a number of round-table discussions, she approaches the conclusion and the answer to the title of the book. It's not about whites, but about whiteness, the system of privilege and prejudice that is still in place, she concludes. She quotes Joel Nechitzenzi, who said, Not being limited by race, 
does not and should not suggest the post-racial notion that race does not exist or that we are somehow beyond race, a form of color blindness. By emphasizing an overarching identity rooted in South Africanness, does not and should not imply South African society would become a melting pot of undifferentiated beings, from sport and music preferences to language, ethnic origins, religious beliefs, and so on, individuals will continue to evince and take pride in their multiple identities. Hefferge notes that Nechitsenzi raises a question vital for her white compatriots, especially those who control the levers of economic power. Has the founding compact to right the historical injustice been achieved? We have peace, but is it sufficient? However, she ends on a positive note, by quoting Nelson Mandela who said, it always seems impossible until it is done. What if there were no whites in South Africa by federal hafiji is thought-provoking and stimulating. Yeah, very interesting, Peter. And uh, Philip Todras, a handsome monograph, you call it, on Sue Williamson's work. Sue Williamson, Life and Work, is a new monograph which has just been published by Skera and comes out very propitiously at the time that Sue also has an exhibition at the Goodman Gallery. Sue, your history is quite an impressive one in terms of being both artist and activist and the whole concept of art and the ethical imperative. Quite a burden to carry on your shoulders and yet when one looks at the huge body of work that you have produced, there's such a series of being witnessed to. Can we start with that perhaps and where it all started from and what activated you in the first place? Well, Philip, I started life actually as a journalist and had trouble making my way as a journalist because in South Africa in those days editors didn't want to send women out on any of the hard stories and they wanted to restrict them to doing social news. And so I moved from journalism into advertising and I went to New York and I lived there for five years and I worked in a big ad agency writing commercials and writing copy and I started going to art school at night. And then when I came back to South Africa, I found myself drawn into really trying to do something about the situation here. I'd kind of left as a very young woman and I came back in my late 20s and I felt that I couldn't really live in this country unless I tried to do something. And that something became being involved in human rights organizations. And at the same time, I was, I'd started to go to art classes in New York. And I began to combine the two, in a sense, at the same time as I was sitting in, in people's little homes in Crossroads or in Modadam. I would be drawing or making notes or witnessing, because one of the things that one did in those days, in those various movements, was to bear witness and that's how it started. Bearing witness and recording and communicating your concerns. Correct. And we start off really, I suppose, yes, there was Mordedam, there was Crossroads, but I think the first time we really heard a lot about Sue Williamson was when you got into what, you know, debris in an art gallery. Do you want to talk about The Last Supper and the gallery, yes. gallery once upon a time? Yes, well, that was 1981, and it was the last year of District 6, really, and it was, and I'm sure everybody knows that District 6 was an area close to the centre of Cape Town which was demolished under the Group Areas Act. And But it, it was a process which went on for a long time and, and people kept trying to stop it going any further. 
But by 1981, there were only a few rows of houses left. And I decided to highlight it as an art exhibition. And literally, I had a, an old Land Rover at the time, and I picked up large objects from demolition sites, door frames, doors, windows, cups, exercise books, bricks, wrought iron pieces, all sorts of things. And I put them in the middle of the gallery. Before the word installation art was really in fashion. Yes, before the word installation art was in fashion. And I borrowed six chairs from a friend of mine in District 6, Naz O'Brien. But that's also very important to me. All your protest works always were personalised. It wasn't about just an issue. There was always a person or people involved. That's true, Philip. I always am very interested in the person inside whatever it is that's happening. And, and in fact, that's you focused on some South Africans, which I thought was also very telling for me because you try to focus on people who normally weren't part of the South African agenda or in focus in South Africa and significantly highlighted a lot of people who subsequently became somewhat important and quite iconic. Yes, it was a matter, it was a series of portraits I did around women, screen prints and portraits, and I thought it was important to highlight their history because nobody ever heard of them. You never saw those women in the newspaper and or in magazines. You just knew nothing about them, so that I had a very interesting time meeting them, excavating their history and making work around them. And what's important to me is you went back to them, and quite a few of these topics that you touched on, you've reverted to and updated them in very important and meaningful ways. Well, I tend to do that. I, I, don't, I stay interested in topics and come back to them in different ways over the years. Well, what I've also liked about your current exhibition and the words you used when you walked us around it was, you're now enjoying making art. And you were talking in particular about the series of city works that you're doing. And again, it's collaborative as well. Would you like to talk about that for a moment? Yes, that is a series called Other Voices, Other Cities. And I was interested in finding out what makes people live in any particular city. Why do they decide to live in that place? So that I gather a group together, interview them, and we vote on the statement they think describes it best and then we line up a couple of days later spell out the statement and take photographs of it you make it sound very easy but like all your work it has layers upon layers you bring us back you focus very sharply but you also show us what the various shifts are in between sharp focus and the various layers that, that just is around the way we live and the people that live those lives which are more complicated and complex than one would begin to imagine we've been speaking to sue williamson about her work called life and work it is published by skira and it's being distributed in south africa by thames and hudson i know it's available at the goodman gallery and other select bookshops and if you want to get an overview of how we've lived and how we hope we will live You'd be well advised to get Sue Williamson, Life and Work.
Mania the Carnival by is it Louise is it Louise Bonfa and it was so gloriously played by James Grace and here again is your easy peasy question to win one of four of Caro Feely's books or one of two 200 rand vouchers from Wordsworth Books now yesterday 35,000 strong-limbed riders rode the glorious peninsula in a gruelling race. Were these motorbike riders or cyclists? Give us your answers on 021-401-1013. Cindy Moritz, an ecstatic, visceral and virile take on the biblical King David. It is often said there is nothing new under the sun, a notion attributed to the author of Ecclesiastes. If that is so, then this reimagining of an ancient story could not have been better retold. Author Geraldine Brooks is good at this, as Alice Hoffman wrote in the Washington Post. She is a master at bringing the past alive, imbuing history with living, breathing characters who allow us to understand the very difficult task of being human. Here, Brooks demonstrates the power of biblical stories to instruct and inform in this day and age. The Secret Chord is her fictional account, reconstructed from scriptural sources, of the life of David, the biblical king of Israel, described as the most legendary warrior of all time, father of Solomon, and ultimately of a nation. Many people will recall the tale of David and Goliath, but who was the human being David, and what became of him? Fortunately for Brooks, David's biography is the oldest piece of history writing. She writes, David is the first man in literature whose story is told in detail from early childhood to extreme old age. Let me just say that the author has chosen to use the transliterated biblical names of all the characters, so I will do the same. Scroll back 2,000 years to ancient Israel. Brooks chose to have Natan, the prophet, narrate. He is summoned to the aging and by then overly protected King David, and after convincing the king to chronicle his life story, is sent to interview a range of significant people. This is the means through which we discover the multidimensional story of the life of this morally complex hero. Natan speaks with David's mother and surviving brother, who recall him as a young outcast forced to fend for himself. David's wives are each deserving of their own fully told story. Some loved him, some hated him. Each have valuable pieces to add to the puzzle that is David. One of those wives, Michal, who received Natan without warmth, but more civilly than he had expected is described as living in the quarters of one who has fallen from grace, more fit for an upper servant than the daughter of one king and the wife of another. It is through her that we hear more about the one who was perhaps David's greatest love, her brother Jonathan, or Jonathan. Nathan tells us, She had always been uncommonly direct for a woman, and I soon discovered that this was still true. I loved him, you know that I suppose, Michal says. It is important that you know. Michal was in love with David. Nobody ever writes that about a woman. It's always the man whose love is thought worthy of recording. Well, you write that down, that it was I. I was the one who loved. Natan responds, Surely it would not be untrue to write that David was in love with Michal. He did love you once. You want the truth, you say? The truth is, at that time, the other love consumed him. David was at the height of his passion for my brother when he took me in marriage, she retorts, before revealing more intimate details for proof. 
I'm not the first to recognize that the secret chord reads like a prose poem, whose content, though sometimes harrowing, still makes for a proper page-turner filled with fast-moving scenes and dialogue. And to what does the secret chord refer? Remember, David was a harpist and composer of many a well-known song, and his singing was the stuff of legend. It would be largely for his music that he would be remembered too. As Michal described, in voice and in musicianship, David has no peer. At the start of the novel, as Natan attempts to uplift the demoralized king, he says, Your line will not fail, you know this, yet memory surely will. When all who knew you in life are but bleached bone and dust, your descendants, your people, will crave to understand what manner of man you were when you did these deeds first and last. Not just the deeds, the man. In The Secret Chord, Brooks yet again demonstrates her powerful aptitude for captivating storytelling and her skillful ability to conjure the man David, not only the deeds by which we remember him. Beverly Rossmuller, a long, hard look at Churchill's incomings and outgoings. Winston Churchill may well be remembered as the man who saved the world from the beastly Nazis, but he was amazingly hopeless with his own money. His love of champagne was legendary, and he smoked an estimated quarter of a million cigars in his lifetime. David Locke was recently in Cape Town to talk about his Churchill book, No More Champagne. And he sees with Sir Winston as a flawed, if remarkable man, an extravagant personality, and claims that much can be told about a person from the way he handles his money. Churchill was both a huge risk-taker and also incurably confident, and these character traits of being unafraid to act boldly and then to retain his nerve were critical in defeating Hitler in World War II. Grandson of the Duke of Marlborough, Churchill lived in great privilege throughout his life, though he inherited the family's large spending habits too. His father, Lord Randolph, was a politician, a gambler, and an adulterer, as was his lovely American mother, Jenny Jerome, who later claimed that she'd had 200 lovers and married two more husbands younger than her own two sons. When his father died aged 45, Winston, who was then 20, had some expectations of future trust funds, but little actual cash, so he began to write. And then the Boer War changed the whole course of his life. He came to South Africa as the highest paid war correspondent ever after an earlier career in the army. Years later, he summed up this pivotal event. If I had not been caught, I would not have escaped, and my imprisonment and escape provided me with enough materials for lectures and a book which brought me in enough money to get into Parliament in 1900. And it also taught him a great appreciation of Boer soldiers and their marksmanship, and particularly the generals Louis Borter and Jan Smuts, with whom he later forged close and admiring relationships. It's a little startling to note that as the V-2 rockets were pounding London in the war, Churchill was locked in mortal combat with his tax wizards, trying to figure out how to keep him solvent. And gifts from the mining magnate Sir Henry Strakosh in 1938 and 1940 saved him from financial disaster, rather troublingly close to the moment that Churchill took over the nation's nervous reigns. 
The book's title, No More Champagne, must be ironic. In a two-month period in 1949, his household records show the consumption of 454 bottles of champagne, plus 311 bottles of wine, 58 of brandy, 56 of whiskey, 58 of sherry, and 69 of port. Locke's book recognizes that there are some things about Churchill's financial affairs that today would not bear close scrutiny. After the war, the young Queen Elizabeth offered him the Dukedom of London, which he declined, saying coyly that such a title was meaningless unless it were accompanied by large estates, a hint she did not take. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1953, remarking to Clementine, his wife, tax-free. This is a meticulous, though slightly dry account of Churchill's capacity to make huge sums of money, mainly through his writing, and to spend it equally ferociously. No more champagne? Not bloody likely. Other recommended works on Churchill include Boris Johnson's lively The Churchill Factor and the recommended biography by former UK Home Secretary, also my ex-landlord, Lord Roy Jenkins. I've been talking today about No More Champagne, Churchill and His Money by David Locke. Rosie Sturgis, a.k.a. R. C. Sturgis. What, what does the C stand for, Rosie? Catherine. Okay. Now, the last time I interviewed you was about your... Well, wonderful wildlife bronze sculptures, which are in galleries and private collections worldwide. Now you've turned to domesticated animals in your riveting book. It's called Mammals That Moved Mankind, A History of the Beasts of Burden, where you so intriguingly chronicle the history of those mammals that have helped mankind to survive. You've chosen six. Which six? And... Rosie, why are some mammals able to be domesticated and others not? Well, there are certain animals that really are quite undomesticated. Well, most of the tiger and lion family would eat their people. Remember Miss Ryger who went for a ride on a tiger? <laughs> <laughs> and then a lot of deer are terrified of people and so on. So you had to have an animal that was able to fit into the family of human beings and really to respond to our treatment. And, I mean, your book has the most marvellous covers. It's colourful and it's appropriate. And there are six. Your six mammals are there. Give us the six. There were dogs was the first one. They were a long time before anything else. They were wolves originally, and then they turned into dogs because we both had the same idea of hunting together and um, having a good munch on a mammoth steak. <laughs> so, uh, we'd dig a hole, they'd chase the mammoth in, and then we'd all sit down and have a yum-yum together. <laughs> then the next one was cattle, and actually when you look at the aurochs, it's amazing that we managed to uh, overcome them and get them domesticated, because they're quite frightening, the aurochs. If you go to the Lascaux Caves, you see the original ones. Sure. And then the next one was the where the horses, and again, well, they started in North America, which I find extraordinary, because I had no idea about that until I found out. And then they crossed the Bering Straits and went to Asia, and the ones that were left in North America were eaten by a man who'd crossed the other way, so there were none left. 
Yeah. And until Columbus turned up with them, the Indians didn't know about them. In fact, they called them big dogs when they first saw them. But anyway, they'd cross into Asia, and then luckily somebody thought of riding one instead of eating one. Once they started riding them, the whole thing changed, including warfare, of course. Because warfare on horses was much more fun. Not for the horse, but yes. Not for the horse so much. And then, of course, there were camels for crossing the desert and for crossing the mountains. I called them ships of the desert and ships of the mountains. And uh, then elephants. Luckily, we've never really domesticated them, which means we've never bred from them, because heaven knows what sort of frightful things we'd have bred when you think of what we've done to dogs. I mean, a pink elephant would have been the least of it. <laughs> then finally, the reindeer, and that's the only domesticatable deer. They're not frightened of us, and um, we got to ride them. But to begin with, they always were on migration, so man had to go with the reindeer. And then it turned out that reindeer had the most extraordinary lifestyle. I thought they were rather dull-looking, but they're not a bit. They've even got a drug habit, I'm afraid. <laughs> Is that the mushrooms? Yes, there's a big red mushroom with white spots. Both the Sami and the reindeer have a, uh, have a go at it, and they get quite quirky. And, Rosie, you were born here. You were born in South Africa. And you, yes, you... I was. I went to Herschel School. And you live in England now, don't and you? I live in England. I went to St Andrews University in Scotland... Oh. and did history in English and, you... and then I um, got married to the Royal Marine and been and travelled all over the world and seen all sorts of animals both domesticated and wild everywhere Well I mean you've done quite a lot you've travelled in an ox wagon I didn't realise that you you know, mm. were part of the Great Trek That was out on the farm uh, near Wellington Oh and you've ridden camels in Yemen Yes. And in India? And in India you rode elephants? Yes, rode <laughs> elephants. Any sort of feebly sideways. I'd like to have sat properly behind his ne neck. <laughs> but there it was. We had to just be part of the collection. But uh, it's quite amazing what an elephant will do when it's instructed and how gentle they can be with their trunks. They can be terribly savage and they can be terribly gentle. I think you say in your book, in fact, that they can be trained to pick up a needle which is, with their trunks, which is quite I extraordinary. Know, I can't believe it, but I, 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 I read they can. I'd like to see that. And, uh, Rosie, these mammals go back millennia, you know, 3,000 B.C., 30,000 B.C. and so on. And yes, well, yes, the dogs are the earliest. They're 30,000. Yeah. And so, obviously, they're not threatened with extinction, but, you know, they're domesticated. But wild animals most definitely are. Oh, yes. Do you think that you're... the rhino. I'm really worried about the rhino. I know. Do you think that reading this book and just becoming more aware of animals will put paid to poachers and horrible well, hunters? Well, it might help a few people open their eyes, because a lot of city people hardly know what an animal is, you know. And uh, I'm sorry that you don't know reindeer, although I must say, apparently they have their testicles bitten off, which has put me off Father Christmas and his sleigh a bit. <laughs> well, all I can tell you is there was no Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, because his, his uh, antlers would have fallen off before Christmas. <laughs> uh, we were talking to Rosie Sturgis on her book. She calls herself R.C. Sturgis, and the book is called The Mammals That Moved Mankind. And that's it then. It was very good to get your calls. Thank you for them. It, and you all knew that it was the cycle tour yesterday. In fact, the first three men were all South Africans. Today's winners 
there's six of you, and I'm just looking at these pieces of paper. Uh, Emma Halton, Ian Friedlander, it looks like, uh, John Cartwright, June Heyman, Frank Hallett, Noel Crowey, I think it is. It's matinee up next with Johann Herber and Amanda Boerter's book programme at the same time on Wednesday, March the 23rd. And this Fine Music Radio book choice will be podcast in a few days. From production engineer Mawandi Lobi, from Rick Everett, who compiled the music and kept the show on the road, and from me, Gory Bose-Taylor, it's happy reading. You have been listening to Book Choice, brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi. I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them.